Join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And verse 1. And what advantage has the Jews, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, un, does their faithlessness or unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the promise that the author, the Spirit himself, would teach us. May you make us teachable. For some, it may be unto salvation, that they would see that their condemnation is just as well, and that they stand guilty before a God that they've offended by birth, offended by volition, and that they have no hope except in the Lord Jesus. May you open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and to grant them repentance and grant them faith. And, and Father, for your children... Uh, May we be teachable. May we be that soft clay in the potter's hand this morning. May you make application for us. May your spirit so teach us that we'll be able to learn to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we entered uh, chapter 3 last week, and it really shows us that Paul anticipated the resistance that he would have is that he's just walked through from uh, verse 18 up to the end of chapter 2, and he's brought every single person under condemnation. Uh, He's brought the uh, the Gentile to their knees by guilt, um, and then he's also brought the Jews to the bar of God's judgment and found them guilty too. And he just finished saying to them uh, that your privileges do not give you a pass at the judgment of God. And this would have, this in the pride of the Jew, this would have just been met with great resistance, and it was. Last week we saw in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, the responses began to unfold. And we read the rest right up to verse 8. And what we will see here is this imaginary conversation that's occurring. Uh, there, are, there is a dialogue that is occurring here. Uh, we see that the Jew responding to Paul when he says your privileges don't, don't get you salvation or your privileges will not get you past the judgment seat of God. Uh, the Jew is saying basically to Paul, what are you saying? Are you telling us that our advantages as God's chosen people of old, they don't mean anything? Is that the covenant is no longer in effect because of what you're telling us? They don't matter Paul, are you telling us that, that we are no different than these, these pagans, these Gentiles? And Paul comes back and says, no way. I'm not telling you that at all. I have already told you, and I will tell you again, that these advantages that you have as a covenant people, these advantages do indeed matter. They matter a lot. But they matter a lot by way of accountability that you have not kept. 
And he says, yes, when it comes to Gentiles and Jews, you are distinctively different because of the privileges that God gave you. However, when it comes to the issue of salvation and the issue of the need of the gospel, you are no better off than them. And so Paul makes this clear distinction that, yes, the Jews, they did have privileges, but they were not privileges that uh, exempted them from their need of the gospel. And we saw last week in verses uh, 1 and 2, that's all we covered, was that the chief privilege that the Jews had was the oracles of God. Is that they were given the written revelation of God. The problem with what they had done, and we saw that in, verse, in chapter 2, is that they were given special revelation, but they were poor stewards of the revelation. In verse 2, it says just that, much in every way you were entrusted or you were giving a stewardship of the oracles of God, of the word of God, and yet you have not kept the stewardship. In fact, you have been a hypocrite towards the word of God. You've already looked at the Gentiles and condemned them, but the very things that you condemn are the very things that you tolerate. Well, the Jew, uh, in their last grasp of, uh, of defense, they would say, trying to hold on, they've come back with more dialogue. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we find the first question of defense. And now what unfolds is seven more questions. And so this imaginary dialogue begins to unfold. And as we look at verses 3 through 8... Uh, this has been stated by many notable scholars and theologians and preachers down through the centuries that chapter 3, verse 3 through 8 is the most difficult interpretive challenge in the book of Romans. As if I needed to read that. But it truly is something that we got to try to get a hold of. And may God help us to see this. is because this is a very difficult passage. And the difficulty lies in who's talking. There's multiple, multiple speakers it could be interpreted here. Is Paul doing all the asking and all the answering? Or are the Jews asking and Paul answering? Or what about the moral Gentile? Are they asking questions of the fairness of God in this text? And the answer to that, it could be all of them. But the context, I think, drives us to understand the dialogue is, is directed towards the Jew. This has occurred already in the end of chapter 2, and so we would carry that over in the application. But nevertheless, it does apply, and that's part of the application, because what we're seeing in these, in these verses, you know, and, and to summarize this up, what we're seeing is a very clear blasphemy of the character of God. Is that these people, is that they're trying to defend themselves in their privileges, the Jews, and now they're asking questions that they should never even begin to ask. Because what they're doing is they're treading in a very, very dangerous place. They're questioning the faithfulness of God. They're questioning the righteousness of God. And those are areas we got to tread very lightly on. And I'll talk more about that later on by way of application. But as this unfolds, verse 3 and verse 5, we see a contrast. We see that there's a contrast between the unfaithfulness of the Jews, the unfaithfulness of humanity, and the faithfulness of God. Verse 3 says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Be very careful. Be very careful when we start to question. We start to question things, especially about the character of God. And how many times have people gone through trauma and people have gone through difficult situations and begin to question the goodness of God? 
they begin to question the faithfulness of God. And I understand human frailty, and I've understood that I've been there before, and I've been with families, even in my own family, where this has come to be very real. But what is happening here is there's a dialogue that should not be occurring. And what is happening here also is that the Jew is so set in their prideful hypocrisy is that they think it's okay to begin to question these type of things. Well, not only is there the contrast of the unfaithfulness of man, but the, unf- but the faithfulness of God. There's also in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Do you see there the two qualities or two attributes even of God? In verse 3, there's the faithfulness of God. In verse 5, there is the righteousness of God. And right before each one of them is the contrast of the unfaithfulness of man as well as the unrighteousness of man. Now, before we unfold these contrasts in the time that we have, it's important as we, as we look at Romans, in any book, is that we don't get so bogged down on the details that we'll find ourselves going off on perhaps series within a series. Or we'll find ourselves actually missing its connection to the big picture. And in this section here, verses uh, 3 through 8, what has been reminded of throughout verse 18 through um, the verse 20 of chapter 3 is that Paul is talking about two things. He's talking about the folly and the insanity of sin, which brings every human being to condemnation. But he's also talking, he's also talking about judgment. It's both uh, implied and explicitly stated. Look at verse 4 and verse 6 as this theme of the folly and insanity of sin. Now, as you read chapter 1 and you roll through there, you can see, not only have we talked about our society, but you can see the, the absolute insanity of sin. Going against very things that are by nature and celebrating that. That's insanity. And so Paul is, is continuing in chapter 3 with these common themes that unfolded from verse 18, chapter 1, through chapter 3, verse 20. And the first, as I mentioned, is the folly and insanity of sin. Look at the words he uses in verse 4. By no means. That means, may it never be. God forbid, absolutely not, is what Paul's saying. He would also say that in verse 6. And these are connected to man's blasphemous statements or questions against the faithfulness of God and the righteousness of God. This isn't the the last time that he will use those words. Twice in chapter 6 of Romans, he will say once again, uh, by no means. And I'll look at those here with you shortly. But here's the second theme that unfolds in this section, making sure it keeps us connected to the whole theme of what he's trying to do in this section. And that is judgment. Judgment implied and explicit. It's beginning in verse 4. And I want you to note that every verse from verse 4 through verse 8 has something to do, as I mentioned, either explicitly or implied of God's judgment and wrath and condemnation. By no means that God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So there's the point of the theme, judgment. Verse 5, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us, implied judgment. I speak in a human way. Verse 6, but now by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Now we have the picture of the judge on the throne executing what is going to happen to all those in chapter 118 through 320. We move on. But if though my life, uh, through my lie, God's truth... 
abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? There's wrath and judgment. Verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Now, I say that to say this, because when you read your Bible, it's important that you keep it in the context, that you keep it in what you're doing. You can't grab something and try to make it say something it doesn't say. You've got to keep it connected so that you'll understand. Paul's a master. He does not lose sight of what he's saying in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. He explodes with the power of the gospel, and then he's going to go out, and he's going to methodically and logically bring everyone to their knees so that they will show them their need for the gospel. And now we look at these contrasts. And the first one we see in verses 3 and 4 is the contrast between the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. What if some were unfaithful? Remember, this is an imaginary conversation. If Paul is the only one talking, he certainly is implying that the Jews are talking. Because remember, they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to hold on to the privileges that exempts them from judgment, circumcision. We're covenant people. We've been given the oracles. And Paul just chops them down, you know, question after question after question, showing them that you are no different. The gospel you need as well. What if some were unfaithful or without faith? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, this is connected to verse 2, verses 1 and 2. The questioning opening verse 3 is attached to the privilege of the oracles. And the argument is, well, what if some were not faithful to the oracles? I can imagine the, pride, the prideful Jew who thinks he's uh, like the older brother in the prodigal, like he's, he's good to go and that he has kept the things. Or the, the lawyer said, I've kept all these laws. Here's the Jew that's looking around and he's saying, okay, maybe some of those people over there. What if some of those Jews, that's why the word some is so important. Because the implication in the conversation is that they're looking around like they've already done in chapter 1. And I can see them dialoguing and say, well, Paul, you said it doesn't matter. Uh, that, but let me ask you something. What about those guys over there that aren't keeping the oracles? Does their unbelief nullify God's faithfulness? We're seeing the hypocrisy again. They've already done that in chapter 1. And friends, that's what pride does. Pride will blind you to truth. It will prevent you from being humble, and you will be defensive. And so here they are. They're saying, well, Paul, let me ask you this hypothetical thing, Paul. Uh, what if some of those people, you know some of them, Paul. You've seen them. They're over there. They're the people that say they're Christian, but they really don't practice it. Would, d- does that have any effect on God's faithfulness? What Paul does here, he never lets Israel's failure to impugn the covenant graces of God. He never lets the failure of people to nullify the character or to modify the character of God. God's faithfulness is not, is not hindered or altered or changed based on the conduct of human beings. And aren't you glad that's true? Paul's response to these questioning Jews, look at verse 4. He says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, 
as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul looks at these Jews. I'll mention this a couple times because this was a very important uh, insight that I was gaining this week. Be very careful when we talk about the things of God. Be very careful. Remember what Job got at the end of Job? God gave him not only all his stuff and his family, but you know what he gave him? He gave him a very important lesson about Job. Job looks at the Lord and says, I have spoken of things I do not know. And these Jews, you know what they're doing? In their prideful deception and hypocrisy, they are speaking of things they have no business speaking about. And I often wonder in my life, maybe in your life, that you've been in dialogues and conversations. I'm not saying don't talk about the things of God, but have we perhaps talked more about things that we think we know when we really don't know? You know by experience. I wonder how many times I've talked about theological truths and deep truths even, but really haven't understood what I'm talking about. And these Jews, Paul looks at them and says, by no means. Don't ever think that what happens or the conduct of human beings, in particular you who have had the oracles that didn't keep them, don't think that at all uh, touches the character of God. And what, da- what Paul would do in, in, uh, in verse 4, he will quote David from the Septuagint in Psalm 51 verse 4. Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now David, now David does two things, which is not what these Jews would do, because they're so wrapped up in their own defense, trying to defend the fact they don't need the gospel. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David admits his guilt. He also admits the rightful execution of God's judgment upon him. This is not what the Jews want to hear. They don't want to hear that, what do you mean, we're we're under judgment too? But but, but we're privileged. We have the oracles. We have the sign of circumcision. We are the, the, the chosen ones. And Paul would say, no means. By no means are you getting off because of that. And don't you dare begin to think that the unfaithfulness of some is going to impugn the character and the faithfulness of God. David had to arrive to this point. He confesses his guilt. And what does he do in Psalm 51? He pleads the faithfulness of God to restore him. These Jews are questioning God's faithfulness. They're not falling at his feet feet and begging for mercy through the gospel because of his faithfulness. Christopher Ash, he's a good person to read. He said this, quote, The righteousness, and I would add faithfulness, is connected, of God are shown not only in blessing his people when they're faithful, but also in cursing them when they're not. The complacent nominal member of the people of God, that's a contemporary statement he's making, the complacent nominal member of the people of God would do well to remember that, end quote. You remember when they're coming into Canaan? What did God promise them as his covenant people? Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. How does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? Christian, 
Be very careful playing with sin. Be very careful of playing with temptation. You're going to see here, and we'll show it here in, in, in a couple minutes, is underlying the pride and the rebellion of these Jews and their willingness to step into an arena to start talking about the secret things of God and the faithfulness of God and the righteousness of God. You know what they're doing? They are presuming upon God. And Christian, you've got to be very careful in this. Is you've got to be very careful you know, that we don't do that very thing. Yes, you're eternally saved in Christ. Yes, you're eternally secure in Christ. That's not a license to do what you want to do. It is a license for you to surrender and live a life pleasing to Him. And woe be the Christian who thinks it's okay to play with the world. It's okay for us to, well, I'm saved, I've trusted Christ, but then obedience isn't the passion of your life. And the things of God is not the passion of your life. So Paul says to these Jews, you know not what you talk about. And for you to say that the unfaithfulness of some will change the character of God in his dealings with people. You have made man sovereign over God. And God is unchanging in this. And so Christian, one of the applications, I want to give you two on this one. But there's, there's one extra application on this. Don't play with sin. Don't play with worldliness. Don't think that you can live for the pleasures of the world and the ease and the comforts of the world. Don't think that you can have one foot in the world and one foot in the heaven because that's not biblical Christianity. And so the Jews then are dangerously in a bad place. They're presuming upon God. But I want to stretch this a little bit, not stretch it out of the context, but I want you to, to think now about the faithfulness of God. I want you to think about the faithfulness of God, as we read in Deuteronomy, about those who obey and those who do not. Now, I'm not saying that you earn favor with God by your obedience. And I'll mention that in a minute. But the point I want to encourage you with this morning is that the Jews are, are, are focusing with Paul, and it's a really a horizontal conversation. Is there, they're trying to say that, that, trying to trick Paul, really, and yet Paul is holding true to the faithfulness of God and his unchanging nature. In Romans 3, verse 4, look what we read. Actually, he'd say, by no means, it's prosperous for you even to think this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. The faithfulness of God is what keeps you keeping on. The faithfulness of God is what keeps you keeping it on. If you as a Christian, as you fight the good fight of faith, as you run this grueling race, let me ask you, if it was all left upon you and your strength to finish the race, finish the course, how many of you would, would pre persevere? Not a single one of you. I would have quit a long time ago. I would say, hey, I can't do this. But why do you persevere? Why do you not throw in the towel? And I know that some of you, perhaps all of you genuine Christians, there's at times that you've wanted to raise the white flag of surrender and saying, I can't do this. I fail all the time. I can't just keep, I can't, I can't. This Christian life, I can't do it. But you don't raise the flag. And you don't take your Bible and toss it in the dumpster. What do you do? You persevere. Why do you persevere? Because the very thing that the Jews were questioning 
is the very thing that you hang on to. And you hang on not your faithfulness. You hang on to His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Friends, it is God's faithfulness to His Word. His faithfulness to His work in us and through us. His faithfulness to His people. It is His faithfulness. It is the sure anchor that steadies you in life's storms. It's not you tying your spiritual bootstraps up and just gutting this thing out. It's the opposite. It's the anchor of God's unfailing faithfulness that causes you to weather the storms of fears, to weather the storms of doubt, to weather the forms of failure. And He is ever true to His promises. And there's not a single thing you can do that will alter His faithfulness. As a Christian, that should cause you to shout, Hallelujah. Yes. But there's something else it should do, too, if you're not a Christian. His faithfulness is going to bring you to judgment. And you are going to stand before Him. And if you are standing there without the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we're going to start looking at in a couple weeks, if you stand before Him in the filthy rags of your own righteousness, you're going to see how faithful He is to your promises of wrath. Oh, we rejoice in His promises of grace that unto salvation. But let us also remember with, serious, with a serious soberness that He is going to be faithful to execute wrath upon the unbeliever and the rejecter of Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, that should break your heart. It should cause you to drive through your neighborhoods and weep for your neighbors. Those who have no idea that they're rushing to a crisis eternity and God's faithfulness will execute his just wrath upon the unbeliever. But for the believer, I want to take this, the, right, the faithfulness of God from this text and I want you to think about how faithful he is to you. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It does not say, I am sure of this, that you who started a good work in you, you're going to finish it. He didn't say that. Paul says to this persevering church, probably 10 years old, the partnership in the gospel, he says that I know the work that God is doing in you is that he's going to finish that. And what God starts, God finishes. Why? Because of his faithfulness. And then we find 1 Timothy 1.15, writing to a fearful, struggling pastor. Uh, the saying is trustworthy or faithful, deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And if you're a sinner right now, and you're trembling because you know you're going to stand before John, uh, God naked in a righteousness that won't pass, that's good news for you. Because the faithfulness of God says, if you're a sinner, and you know you're a sinner, you can run to my son, and my son will save you. And he will not let you go. It goes on, 2 Timothy 2, 11. This saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And then this, if we are faithless or unbelieving, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And then finally, Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Not some of them. Not on a good day that you're having spiritual, he's going to be faithful to you. Nope. It's when you fall on your face for the umpteenth time, he remains faithful to you. And he will never change. Now, what should that do for us? Not like the Jews, that we look for some way of self-justification at the expense of slandering the character of God. 
That's what they're doing. They're trying to justify themselves without the gospel. And they're willing to go to the blasphemous conversation of questioning the faithfulness of God. So what should that do for you as a Christian if you understand the astounding faithfulness of God to you? It should intensify your faithfulness to him. It should intensify my love for him. It should intensify my desire to see others know this faithful God. Well, there's a second thing, second application of this, this contrast between the unfaithfulness of, of man and faithfulness of God. Not only do we see the faithfulness of God untouched by human conduct, untouched by the slanderous statements of the, uh, of the Jew, which affirms to us his unchanging faithfulness. But look at verse 13 of chapter 2. We'll go back just for a moment. It's been said that verse 13 of chapter 2, that is the interpretive verse of the whole section from 118 to 320. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. How did Paul start out this condemnation of the Gentiles? He showed them that there was a law written in their conscience. And then he says, Jews, by the way, you have it not only in your conscience, but you have it as the oracles of God. And so then, how do I know I truly believe this gospel? How do I know that I've truly experienced the faithfulness of God unto new birth? There's a lot of things we could talk about assurance, and maybe someday we will. But there's one thing for sure that is the strongest and the most reliable evidence that we truly, truly are relying on the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ unto salvation, and that is our obedience. Our obedience. And it's not our obedience to gain favor with God. It's obedience because we have favor with God. It's because of the obedience of Jesus Christ we are enabled to give the the strongest and the chiefest evidence that we truly are uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus. Read the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through, uh, through 16, and then jump into the John 17 High Priestly Prayer. And you'll find numerous times in John 14, the Lord Jesus says these very pointed and very simple statements. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he who loves me will keep my commandments. And my Father and I will manifest ourselves to you or take our abode up in you. Friends, gospel-changed people are Bible-believing and Bible-doing people. Gospel-changed people are Bible-believing and Bible-doing people. And Paul was looking at these Jews and saying, by no means at all is sinful mortals have influence on changing the transcendent, unchanging faithfulness of God. God, it says, my word stands and will fulfill what I sent it to do. Jews, you've not been good good stewards of the oracles, and they themselves bring condemnation upon you because the oracles of God, the word of God, is as faithful as the God of the word. Well, look at verse 5 and 6. So we see the contrast of God's, uh, of man's unfaithfulness uh, and God's faithfulness. And Paul has made it very clear, you're insane to even begin to question the character of God. By no means. God forbid you should even think about this. And he's going to say something to that effect where he says in verse 5, I speak in a human way. It may be hard to understand that, but as you study that and you see the, 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 the unflowing of this argument even, or this debate, Paul is going to use that, that phrase in a way that shows them just how ignorant they really are. 
Let's take a look here. Here's the second contrast in this text. It's righteous, the unrighteousness of man and the righteousness of God. Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. By no means, verse 6. For then how could God judge the world? And then jump down to verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? Why not live loosely so we can magnify the grace of God? Why not do what we want to do so we can run to, uh, run to the blank check of 1 John 1, 9 and praise God for, for forgiving us of our sins that we've confessed, which really haven't because we continue to do the same thing. Why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously chargeth with saying? Now, I've labeled this point here gospel righteousness not to be presumed upon. I, I'm not trying to force a heading here. But I think it's important when we see the phrase like the faithfulness of God, that attribute of his, his, look what also is said in verse 5, the righteousness of God. Well, how is that defined? How is that defined? Well, there's three ways the scripture teaches us about the righteousness of God. The first one, it is his personal attribute, which means he always, always, his being is always right. Who he is, is always right. God never has a day where he's wrong. He's always right in his character. The second definition of this righteousness of God is his dealing with humanity. He always does right. Not only is he always right, the righteousness of his person, but he always does right in his dealing with humanity. And that's what's being questioned here by the Jews. And then there's a third aspect of his righteousness, and I want you to go down to verse 21 of chapter 3. We're getting ahead, but we're going to go back. This is the great but in Romans. And I want you to know how God defines his righteousness here. There's his personal attribute, always being right. There's his dealing with humanity, always doing right. Now there's his saving righteousness in Christ imputed to, to us. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, same phrase we see in verses 5 and 6, righteousness of, of, of chapter 3, righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. When was the righteousness of God in this context, when was it manifested? In the incarnation. And even beyond that, in the eternal counsels of salvation. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, though he fulfilled the law. And verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what makes the righteousness of God practical. And again, we'll talk about that in another time. But here's the argument of the Jews back in verses 5 through 8. Here's the argument. They're saying, okay, so faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of some of those over there, Okay, so they're not going to impact God's faithfulness. I got that, Paul. But what about the, uh, the righteousness of God? Paul says, what are you trying to say? And the Jew is saying this, basically. If human sin, unrighteousness, magnifies God's uprightness and His grace, then it's unjust for God to punish us. Do you see how this, this increase of blasphemy begins to occur? There's the blasphemy of his character of faithfulness. Now they're going to blasphemy the gospel. 
In fact, Robert Haldane, one of the great Scottish divines, Haldane said this, quote, This is an insult against the doctrine of the gospel. Unquote. End quote. And is that not what they're doing? Say, Paul, then, if you're telling me that the unrighteousness of... If our unrighteousness magnifies God's uprightness and grace, then it's not right for him to punish us, Paul. And Paul would once again tell them, no, no, you don't understand. It is not the conduct of human beings that will impugn the faithfulness of God, and it's not the conduct of human beings that will cause his righteousness to deal with them in any way other than his righteousness. Friends, this is what happens, which I believe in modern Christianity has happened for a long time, is that when you go there and you start saying, well, you know, God's, God's grace will forgive. And, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, I fail and I sin. I make mistakes. No, I like what R.C. Sproul said about sin. It's holy treason, treason against a holy God. That's what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not an addiction. It is a willful act of rebellion. And David would tell us in Psalm 51 how depraved we are with three words. He says, cleanse me from my iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Those are not the same. Sin is missing the mark, always falling short. Transgressions is rebellion against a standard. And iniquity is nature, what we are by nature. That's how depraved we are. And the Jews' argument is that, well, we are unrighteous then because God is so good and God is so forgiving, then, yes, it's not going to change anything. He'll just forgive us. And that's what we see in verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. That's why there's such a looseness in Christianity that is not Christianity that will take clear statements of the Bible and what it says and try to skirt around it or ignore it and try to give God a, uh, this picture of, well, God is love. He would never send anyone into hell. God is love. He's not a God of wrath. That is permeating out there. And there are preachers, so-called preachers, that are actually taking clear descriptions of man's conduct in society and saying that's not really what God meant. And none more, more clear than in what's going on with the sexual ethics of our time. To accommodate a homosexual lifestyle, to accommodate those type of abominations and say that you can be a Christian and that God didn't really mean that, that is blasphemy and that is her heretical. And that's, that's not to say we don't love those people. We do. But the Jew is saying, well, then if our unrighteousness then magnifies God's grace, then let's go ahead and be unrighteous. You know what that's called? Bonhoeffer had it all figured out. It's called cheap grace, which is no grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer said this, quote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is no grace because it presumes upon true grace. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul's already addressed their presumption, and now they're doing it again. They just go with a little different tactic in verses 5 and 6 and verse 8. Look at Romans 2, 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man... 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, here's the word, presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the warning in this text here, and the application under the uh, unrighteous, the contrast of unrighteousness and righteousness, the, the warning is simply this, is don't presume upon the gospel of righteousness. Don't claim to have the clo- be clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that you play with sin. You play with temptation. Or you become slothful in the Christian life. Well, let's look at verse 7 and 8. We'll wind this down. Here's the second truth. In the contrast of man's unrighteousness and God's righteousness, that is most comforting to us. Not only is God unchanging in his faithfulness, but he's unchanging in his righteousness. They're so closely related. Verse 7 But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and here is. The statement of his unchanging nature. Their condemnation is just. His condemnation is just. It is objective. It is based on truth as we see in verse 7. But yet he's also full of grace. Remember uh, in Genesis 18. I'm going to close with this. In Genesis 18. Abraham is uh, interceding uh, for Sodom. In verse 22, he says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And, what, and we, if you remember, Abraham went through a bunch of numbers. Lord, will you spare if there's 50 righteous here? And the Lord said, Yes, I will. And then Abraham says, uh, What about 45? Yes, I will. Uh, 40? Yes, I'll be faithful. Lord, what about 30? He couldn't find them. Um, and the Lord said, I will be faithful, and I will deliver the righteous. And then Abraham is getting a little queasy. He said, Lord, what about 20? I'll, I'll deliver if there's 20. And Abraham, I'm sure he's breaking in his heart, and he's shaking his head. And then, and then he says, what about 10? And then the conversation ends. And the Lord promised that even in the midst of all that debauchery and that immorality, he would spare the righteous. And in our world today, if you're a Christian here today, you know what he's done? In our world of debauchery and immorality, he has spared you. He has spared you not because you're righteous in and of yourself like the Jew thought. is because of what we're going to see in chapter 3, the third application of God's attri- his, God, his righteousness. And that is he's given you a righteousness you could not earn. And he's given you a righteousness that you cannot lose. And so Genesis 18, 25 ends like this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the, as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, do what is just. And so that brings us now to verse 9 uh, through 20, Lord willing, next week. And Paul brings the summary condition. He's targeted the Gentile. He's targeted the Jew. And now everybody is guilty. And he's going to lay out the characteristics and very vivid, vivid pictures of all of humanity standing guilty. And what that does, it sets the door 
or sets, it sets us at the, at the door to open up the treasure chest of the gospel, beginning in verse 21. So how do we, uh, what do we apply? How do we apply this very difficult passage? Study and see the contrast, but really the takeaway could very well be this. Be very careful how you talk about the things of God. Be very careful when you start talking about the character of God. Be very careful that we're not guilty of being so familiar with the language of God that we know little of the God of the language. I think Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is a good application. It certainly is for me. I'll read it to you and then we'll pray. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And you know what the sacrifice of fools is? Talk too much. That's the contrast. Solomon said, better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Remember Solomon? He, he was pretty straightforward. Where much words, there's much transgression. And he goes on, Solomon says, better to offer the sacrifice than to offer the better sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Been a good lesson for the Jews in their dialogue with Paul. In their self-defense, in their deceiving self-justification, they were willing to go where no man or woman should ever go. And that is the borderline of blaspheming the character of God. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. and Thank you for loving us and giving us your word. And Lord, forgive us at times, perhaps, that we, we do go to areas we shouldn't. Help us be good st- uh, students of the word, good stewards of the word. May we learn, may we know, may we gain much knowledge. But may it point to a relationship with you that humbles us, that constrains us in our speech, and leaves us okay with unanswered questions about you. And that we would really drift away from the very challenge of going places where you say we are not to go. So, Father, thank you. And thank you again for allowing us to worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.